You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode 156 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Since we spent quite a bit of time on Stonewall Jackson and the 1862 Ballet Campaign, what we want to do with this episode is go back and review the important events of the Peninsula Campaign up through the Battle of Fair Oaks before we start in on the Seven Days Battles. As you guys will recall, the dashing 34-year-old George McClellan arrived in Washington in late July 1861, just five days after the Union Army's crushing defeat at the Battle of First Manassas. The beaten army remained in disarray, but McClellan set to work to rebuild the North's main field army in the Eastern Theater, and he succeeded in spectacular fashion. The Army of the Potomac grew in size and matured through long weeks of training in the late summer and autumn of 1861. The men gained confidence in themselves and in their commander. In fact, Little Mac became the idol of his troops. President Abraham Lincoln initially tolerated McClellan's exhaustive preparation and training of the Army of the Potomac. But even though he didn't want to rush McClellan into disaster as he had Irvin McDowell at Bull Run, Lincoln still expected some positive movement against the enemy in a reasonable period of time. Toward that end, the President gave Little Mac all the support he could possibly desire. When McClellan actively undermined Winfield Scott, the old General-in-Chief of all the Union's armies, aiming to take Scott's place himself, Lincoln allowed McClellan to ignore Scott. When the insulted old warrior could take no more and retired, Lincoln then bestowed the general-in-chief title on the self-important young general. When Lincoln expressed concern that the simultaneous duties of general-in-chief and field commander of the Army of the Potomac might be too much for one mortal to handle, McClellan confidently informed the president, I can do it all. But almost from the moment of anointing McClellan the most powerful military man in the country in November 1861, Lincoln began to have misgivings. More than three months had passed since Little Mac took over the reins of the Army of the Potomac, and no significant move against the rebels had occurred. McClellan seemed to be continually preparing his army for an imminent campaign, but he never actually marched against the nearby enemy in northeastern Virginia. Lincoln's gentle prods for McClellan to get moving and his occasional unsolicited suggestions were always met with a polite but firmly negative response. 
Well, at first, at least, the president's counsel was met with a polite response. But what Lincoln was slow to realize was that these ideas and nudges were resented by Little Mac. You see, McClellan had taken on what can only be described as a messiah complex when he became the commanding general of the Army of the Potomac. McClellan felt and frequently wrote to his wife that he had been called on by God to save the nation. This, of course, was an enormous responsibility, yet it was one that he found very flattering and very satisfying. But in light of the fact that he had been called on to save the nation, McClellan resented that a rank amateur like Lincoln would dare to offer advice to a professional military man about matters of strategy. Little Mac would not countenance such interference, and the young general's personal tone in his references and dealings with the president began shifting markedly in the fall of 1861. His actions spoke volumes as he ceased explaining to Lincoln the reasons for his delays and simply continued asking for more men and more supplies. Perhaps the culmination of McClellan's own sense of self-importance came one autumn evening when Lincoln and Secretary of State William H. Seward paid a visit to the general's house to chat. Upon arriving, they were informed that the general was out and would return shortly. While the President and Secretary of State waited in the parlor, McClellan returned home by the back door and chose not to meet his distinguished guests. Sometime later, when Lincoln asked when McClellan was due, he was informed that the general had returned and gone to bed. The President and Secretary of State departed humiliated. Seward was incensed, but Lincoln took it in his long stride, though he never again paid a social visit on his general. The relationship between McClellan and Lincoln began to fray when Little Mac realized that the president wasn't going to allow him to move on his own timetable. And when it became apparent to Lincoln that his top general showed neither comprehension of nor sympathy for the political considerations in which the federal military was involved, the northern public expected action, and Lincoln himself wanted McClellan to move sooner rather than later to drive the Confederate Army away from Washington. Every day the Confederate Army remained in northeastern Virginia, just a stone's throw from Washington, reminded everyone of the debacle at Bull Run in July 1861. Lincoln expected McClellan to use the Army of the Potomac to drive the rebels away by autumn, and he certainly expected Little Mac to realize that he had to do something toward that end. The president, however, was disappointed in both regards. Late in 1861, therefore, Lincoln began taking a much more direct involvement in the actions of the army. The president tentatively flexed his muscles as commander-in-chief as a means to, if nothing else, force McClellan to either move against the rebels or at least communicate his plans for doing so. Lincoln had publicly defended McClellan for nearly five months, but had grown frustrated with his top general's inaction and his silence about future plans. Lincoln came to fear that Little Mac would never move unless compelled, and so in late December 1861, the president began maneuvering to get McClellan to finally put the army into the field. 
But the fiasco at Ball's Bluff in October had only increased McClellan's caution and renewed his determination not to commit his army to battle until he knew that he had such an overwhelming force that victory was the only possible outcome. Of course, waiting for the day when success in war is guaranteed would commit one to wait without end. Lincoln, however, didn't have that kind of time. And so in December 1861, when McClellan came down with typhoid fever and was bedridden for some days, Lincoln took the opportunity to act. Lincoln summoned several senior generals to the White House to discuss potential strategies for an upcoming campaign. When McClellan learned of this, he rose from his sickbed and invited himself to a subsequent meeting, where, in an ill humor, he announced that he was developing a plan that he would submit to Lincoln soon. The president accepted this, but when Little Mac didn't follow through, Lincoln started issuing orders on his own with the encouragement of his new Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. On January 27, 1862, Lincoln issued General Orders No. 1, which stated that McClellan and his army would attack Joseph E. Johnston's Confederate army at Manassas and Centerville on February 22nd. As evidence of Lincoln's mounting frustration, the date was chosen for no other reason than because it was George Washington's birthday. Then on January 31st, Special Orders No. 1 stated the different routes the various formations of the army would travel to attack the rebels. In response to these presidential orders, McClellan begged to be allowed to submit his own campaign plan, which he did on February 3rd. McClellan noted that a straightforward assault on the Confederate Army, which remained behind fortifications at Manassas and nearby Centerville, would likely produce many casualties and might not accomplish anything more than control of Northern Virginia. Far better, McClellan argued, would be to avoid striking the entrenched Confederate army and instead aim for the heart of the rebellion, the rebel capital city of Richmond. To that end, Little Mac proposed a sweeping amphibious movement around Johnston's right flank and into his rear. After landing at Urbana, Virginia, McClellan would threaten the Confederate capital and make the rebel position at Manassas and Centerville untenable. McClellan would therefore not only have removed the enemy from the vicinity of Washington without having to fight them, but he could, by rapid marches, capture Richmond before Johnston could react. Lincoln harbored reservations about the plan. He couldn't understand why such a scheme was better than a direct march against the enemy army, and he was concerned about the safety of Washington in the Army of Potomac's absence. But after McClellan steadfastly stood by his proposal, and when a majority of the Army's senior generals supported Little Mac's plan, Lincoln, on Saturday, March 8th, gave his consent, provided McClellan leave a sizable number of men around Washington to protect the capital. Accepting this condition, McClellan set to work to make his plan a reality. But on that same Saturday, Joseph E. Johnston began removing his men from the lines they had been defending for eight months and retreated south to Fredericksburg on the Rappahannock River. Johnston retreated because he mistakenly believed that McClellan was going to attack him. When word arrived in Washington that the Confederates were gone, a surprised McClellan blustered about, quote, pushing the retreat of the rebels as far as possible, end quote and he advanced troops into the abandoned enemy works, but there they stopped. 
Reporters accompanying the army made much of the fact that the size of the rebel encampments made it evident that the enemy army was actually much smaller than McClellan had claimed, and when they saw that the rebels had used logs painted black to look like artillery, they ridiculed Little Mac for being taken in by those so-called Quaker guns. In the wake of this embarrassment, Lincoln, reasoning that McClellan had plenty to occupy him in just commanding the Army of the Potomac, relieved him of his duties as general-in-chief. The president didn't name an immediate replacement and determined, for the time being, to fill the role of chief general himself with assistance from Secretary of War Stanton. McClellan took his demotion in stride, writing to his wife, quote, I regret the rascals are after me again. End quote. But he was in the midst of preparing to launch his amphibious end run and focused most of his attention on the upcoming campaign. The unexpected Confederate retreat, however, had forced Little Mac to alter his plan. Instead of landing at Urbana, McClellan would transfer the Army of the Potomac farther down Chesapeake Bay to the Virginia Peninsula, formed by the easily navigable York and James Rivers. However, access to the latter river was denied to Little Mac due to the threat from the Confederate ironclad CSS Virginia. On March 7th, the Virginia had steamed out of Norfolk and wreaked havoc on the wooden-hauled Federal Blockading Squadron, causing panic both among the naval commanders on site and in the highest levels in Washington. But the very next day, the Union ironclad USS Monitor arrived on the scene and dueled the Virginia to a draw. The rebel ironclad retreated, but its very presence nearby meant McClellan would be denied access to the James River to move troops. After landing at Fort Monroe on the tip of the peninsula, Little Mac would have to settle for a single, waterborne approach along the York River. Norfolk would fall later to Union forces, and the Virginia would be scuttled, but by that time McClellan had already committed his army and his advance to the York and he wasn't inclined to move operations over to the line of the James. At any rate, on March 17th, the first of McClellan's troops left the port of Alexandria across from Washington, bound for the Chesapeake Bay. In the days that followed, thousands upon thousands of federal troops poured ashore at Fort Monroe, starting a chain of events that would shift the focus of the war in the east to the peninsula. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In addition to having to adjust his plans on the peninsula, McClellan received more unwelcome news from Abraham Lincoln. The president's major condition in approving Little Mac's waterborne end run was that enough troops had to be left behind to guarantee Washington's security. McClellan promised as much and then began embarking units in late March and early April, heading toward Fort Monroe. On April 1st, Little Mac hastily wrote out a report of all the troops available to guard the Capitol, sent it to the War Department, and immediately set off on his own voyage down the Chesapeake for Fort Monroe, even before Lincoln or Stanton had an opportunity to read it. So fed up was McClellan in dealing with the President and Secretary of War that he declined to meet with them to explain the troop dispositions. McClellan probably also realized that even he couldn't make the math work satisfactorily, but presumed that once the army was in motion, Lincoln wouldn't have the nerve to alter the grand campaign plan. But when Lincoln and Stanton computed the numbers, they felt they'd been misled by McClellan, who claimed more troops were available than actually existed. As a result, Lincoln sent a message to McClellan saying that he was ordering McDowell's First Corps, which had not yet embarked, to remain behind to guard Washington. Unaware of these developments, McClellan, with 60,000 men, stepped off rapidly on April 5th, aiming for Yorktown, 15 miles up the peninsula from Fort Monroe. Little Mac anticipated quickly overwhelming the enemy defenses at Yorktown and then proceeding to the location he most coveted, West Point, a stop on the Richmond and York River Railroad that would serve as his main supply depot on his drive to the Confederate capital. The few rebel troops on the peninsula at that time were commanded by Prince John Magruder, and McClellan's intelligence on the size of Magruder's force was quite accurate, probably the only time in the ensuing three months that it would be. But McClellan expected to face about 15,000 Confederate troops near Yorktown. The problem was that McClellan's intelligence had not discovered that Magruder had taken advantage of the terrain along the Warwick River to create a defensive line along that waterway. When his advancing troops unexpectedly ran into Magruder's Warwick River line, McClellan allowed this unforeseen complication to derail his quest for a quick and decisive action at Yorktown. Despite the fact he outnumbered the enemy in front of him by five to one, at the first hint that everything wasn't going according to his plan, McClellan faltered, unable to adapt, improvise, and overcome the obstacle before him. He abandoned the quick strike on which his entire plan had been predicated and decided to settle in and conduct a siege of Yorktown. The same day that he unexpectedly ran up against Magruder's Warwick River line, McClellan received the news that Lincoln was holding back McDowell. Despite the fact that even without the First Corps, he would still have 100,000 men on the peninsula, McClellan was outraged at the President's decision, and he began a rationalization process that would later blame all the shortcomings of the campaign on the withholding of McDowell's troops. 
To that end, McClellan fabricated uses for McDowell that he hadn't contemplated until long after he learned that he would be without him. At any rate, instead of brushing aside Magruder, McClellan instead began his preferred tactic, and one that he likely intended to employ all along, that is, besieging the enemy position. Little Mac had gone to the trouble to transport a large number of heavy siege guns to the peninsula, and this is a strong indication that his real strategy for the campaign was a war of post, gaining ground foot by foot, if necessary, until he could overwhelm the Confederate defenses at Richmond with his heavy guns. But now, having run into an unexpected obstacle in the form of Magruder's Warwick River line, Little Mac would besiege Yorktown and give his army its first practice for the main event. McClellan had begun his campaign with the stated intention of getting to Richmond ahead of Joseph E. Johnston. But Little Mac's decision to settle in and besiege Yorktown meant that he would face the very rebel force he claimed to be trying to avoid by shifting the Army of the Potomac to Peninsula. When Johnston received word that the Yankees were landing at Fort Monroe in great numbers, he, in short order, discerned what was happening and began to move his army from the Rappahannock down to the Peninsula. When Johnston inspected Magruder's positions, though, he saw that the rebel defenses were absurdly weak and that Prince John had merely been using smoke and mirrors to fool McClellan and buy time. Johnston wrote to Robert E. Lee, saying, No one but McClellan could have hesitated to attack. As you guys will recall, Lee at this time was in Richmond, serving as Confederate President Jefferson Davis's chief military advisor. In any event, after inspecting Magruder's position, Johnston immediately requested a conference with Davis in Richmond to explain why the Confederates would have to retreat. The conference on April 14th was unusual, mostly because Johnston's strained relationship with Jefferson Davis meant the general mainly ignored his commander-in-chief. Johnston had taken to completely ignoring Davis's inquiries and suggestions, to the point that the Confederate president was largely clueless as to his top field commander's thoughts and actions. Johnston's sour relationship with Davis wasn't going to improve once he told the president that the Confederates would have to abandon Yorktown and retreat up the peninsula, falling back on Richmond. For the April 14th meeting, Davis invited Lee and Secretary of War George Randolph to join him, while Johnston brought along his second-in-command, Gustavus Smith, and his most trusted division commander, James Longstreet. For 14 hours, the six men debated strategy, with Davis finally ordering Johnston to defend the Yorktown-Warwick River line rather than retreating. Johnston obeyed, but never seriously expected to hold for long before falling back on Richmond. And so, while Joseph E. Johnston was unhappily defending a position he considered indefensible, George McClellan was methodically preparing his siege lines and positioning his big guns for the moment they would blast the rebel positions at Yorktown and obliterate them. One of the main reasons McClellan was so sure a siege was the only practical path to victory was that throughout the campaign he consistently overestimated the enemy's numbers. He had started this back when he grossly inflated the number of Confederate troops at Manassas Centerville. 
Many historians blame McClellan's hand-picked intelligence chief, Alan Pinkerton, for Little Mac's overestimates of enemy strength. But the truth is, McClellan had overstated rebel numbers from the day he took command because it suited him to do so. Even though few other people believed these numbers, McClellan wanted to believe he was greatly outnumbered because it allowed him to control the narrative of the campaign. He could justify his caution and methodical approach because of the odds he faced. Furthermore, if he managed to win the climactic battle for Richmond, his glory would be all the greater for having overcome such odds. But if he suffered defeat, then he would be blameless, for no general could hope to overcome such incredible odds as he faced. And so at every opportunity, Little Mac sought to increase the strength of his opponent, even though hardly anyone outside his headquarters believed the outrageous figures. As y'all recall, McClellan spent an entire month stalled in front of Yorktown, preparing for his big bombardment of the rebel defenses. But Joe Johnston had no intention of letting the Yankees blast him with their heavy artillery. Correctly divining the moment McClellan was preparing to attack, Johnston sent word to Richmond in late April that the day he had warned about had come. After a few delays, he ordered his troops to withdraw on the night of May 3rd. To cover the withdrawal, Johnston ordered a massive, though unfocused, artillery barrage of his own. Under the distraction of these impressive fireworks, the rebel army quietly retreated from Yorktown. Yorktown was about 60 miles from Richmond, and in nine days, Johnston moved his army back 40 miles closer to the Confederate capital. Fearful of being flanked by a Yankee force steaming up the York River, Johnston fell back rapidly, fighting only a few skirmishes along the way to delay the enemy. The largest such engagement during the Confederate retreat was at Williamsburg on May 5th. The Williamsburg fight was intense, considering the relatively small number of troops involved. Some retreating Confederate soldiers managed to get all the way back to Richmond itself, spreading a bleak tale of misery and gloom and generally appearing demoralized. All Joe Johnston could tell Jefferson Davis was that he had to keep falling back, reacting to McClellan's movements, hoping the enemy commander would make a mistake. That wasn't a plan to inspire much confidence. On May 14th, Confederate War Department clerk John B. Jones wrote in his diary, quote, Much anxiety is felt for the fate of the city. Is there no turning point in this long lane of downward despair? On May 7th, Confederate General Benjamin Huger abandoned Norfolk and eventually crossed the James River and joined Johnston's army near Richmond, while the Virginia was scuttled on May 11th. Union gunboats immediately began steaming up the James River toward Richmond, but they were stopped eight miles below the city on May 15th at the Battle of Drury's Bluff. That same day, May 15th, Johnston ordered his army to pull back behind the last river in front of Richmond, the Chickahominy. Joe Johnston had always wanted to take a defensive position closer to Richmond, where he couldn't be flanked easily and he had the advantage of interior lines. That is, he could move units to threaten sectors more quickly than his opponent. But in falling back to the very outskirts of Richmond, Johnston now had precious little room left to retreat. In some places, his lines were less than half a dozen miles from the city. Once McClellan came up, he wouldn't have very far to go to bring his big siege guns to bear. 
And once those guns opened up, the Confederate army in Richmond likely couldn't hold out for long. And so, with his back now to the wall, Johnston needed to find some way to turn the tables on McClellan. He also seemed to be running out of not just space, but also time, for by late May, he was aware that McDowell's first corps, which had been held back by Lincoln, had advanced south to Fredericksburg, halfway to Richmond, from which point McDowell would presumably advance to join McClellan any day now, increasing the already daunting odds against Johnston. But as y'all recall from our coverage of the Valley Campaign, Stonewall Jackson's success in the Shenandoah Valley led to Abraham Lincoln's suspension of McDowell's march to Richmond. Prompted by Robert E. Lee, Jackson had gone on the offensive in the Valley. After Jackson won victories at Front Royal on May 23rd and at Winchester on May 25th, he advanced north to the Potomac to threaten Harper's Ferry. McDowell at Fredericksburg had already received orders on May 17th to march to join McClellan as soon as a division from the Shenandoah Valley, led by James Shields, joined him. A subsequent order stated that McDowell should begin his march to join McClellan on May 26th. McDowell had stated that it would take him only four days of easy marching to join McClellan at the gates of Richmond. And by May 24th, a portion of McClellan's army stood at Mechanicsville, just five miles from the Confederate capital, and could hear the city's church bells ringing. But that night, Little Mac received a telegram saying that Lincoln had suspended McDowell's orders to move to Richmond, and instead McDowell was to march to the Shenandoah and take part in an attempt to trap Stonewall Jackson. Lincoln was certain that even without McDowell's force, McClellan still had more than enough men to take Richmond. So in an attempt to go Little Mac into action, the president told him he ought to either carry out his assault on the rebel capital or come back to help guard Washington. Lincoln, of course, didn't expect McClellan to withdraw from the gates of Richmond. The frustrated president was merely trying to spur his top general into action. Despite Lincoln's prodding, McClellan, of course, wasn't prepared to attack Richmond at that time. But across the way, Joseph E. Johnston finally felt the moment had come for him to launch an attack and relieve the pressure on the rebel capital. Johnston's attempt to seize the initiative and throw back the Yankees would lead to the Battle of Fair Oaks, or Seven Pines, which began on May 31st. When Johnston, at long last, set out to attack the Union forces that had advanced to the very doorstep of Richmond, he saw that McClellan had arranged his army in such a way as to allow the Confederates an opportunity. You see, to protect his supply base at White House Landing on the Pamunkey River, and to protect the railroad line that would bring his precious siege guns closer to Richmond, McClellan had placed more than half his force, three of his five corps, north of the Chickahominy. With the corps of Porter, Franklin, and Sumner all north of the river, Johnston crafted a plan that called for an attack on the two federal corps south of the Chickahominy, Key's fourth corps and Heinzelman's third. Johnston knew that heavy rains the last ten days of May had caused the river to flood and inundate the countryside around it, and threatened to wash away the bridges linking the two portions of McClellan's divided army. Johnston explained his plan to James Longstreet, whom he authorized to execute the attack. 
Johnston intended a two-pronged attack on the Federal position at Fair Oaks Station. While D.H. Hill's division engaged the Yankees in front of the Seven Pines Crossroads with the support of Uge's division on his right, Longstreet would lead a devastating flank attack from the left down the Nine Mile Road. Together, these assaults should overwhelm the Federals south of the Chickahominy before help could arrive from the rest of McClellan's army north of the river. When Longstreet left the meeting on the evening of May 30th, Johnston was confident of success the next day. Indeed, one of Johnston's staff officers later said that, quote, It was an excellent and well-devised scheme, and apparently as simple as any plan could be. But Joe Johnston should have written out explicit orders for the execution of his simple plan, because whatever Longstreet heard from Johnston, it, it was not the plan that the Confederate commander had envisioned. The next morning, Longstreet marched his men to the wrong location, immediately derailing most of Johnston's plan. Instead, Fair Oaks was a badly botched battle in which the Confederates, led by D.H. Hill, drove back some Federals through sheer determination, but fell short of a decisive breakthrough due to lack of support. The rebels suffered some 5,000 casualties on May 31st and June 1st to little purpose. One of those casualties was the Army's commander. Late on the afternoon of the 31st, as Joe Johnston belatedly roused himself to try to fix what Longstreet had bungled, he was hit by a bullet and shell fragment nearly simultaneously, resulting in a serious shoulder wound that would take him out of action for, se- for several months. On June 1st, the second day of the battle, when it became apparent that Gustavus Smith was incapable of handling the pressure of high command, and lacking any other officer in whom he felt confidence, Jefferson Davis appointed Robert E. Lee to be commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, as the Confederate force defending Richmond was then being called. And that's where we left off the story of the Peninsula Campaign previously, before we spent so much time out in the Shenandoah Valley. And so it's also where we'll pick up the story again next week, when we see what happens after Robert E. Lee assumed command of the army that he would make famous. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Library of Congress Civil War Desk Reference, edited by Margaret Wagner, Gary Gallagher, and Paul Finkelman. This is one of the reference works that we are constantly pulling out to consult for dates and facts and figures and whatnot, and we thought some of you might be interested in it too. It's a great one-volume encyclopedia of just about everything you need to know about the Civil War. So that's the Library of Congress Civil War Desk Reference, edited by Margaret Wagner, Gary Gallagher, and Paul Finkelman. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We have quite a few new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to welcome, uh, Hayden, Michael, and Nev, William, Robert, and Douglas, Edgardo and Josh, and Rick and Mariah. Thanks, y'all. And thanks also to Jacob F. in Indiana for his recent donation to the podcast. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue to set the stage for the Seven Days Battles. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.